Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, uh, today the topics, uh, of course, um, we had a, a Fed meeting and uh, Chairman Powell of the Fed pretty much said that he's not raising interest rates. Is he not? Of course he's raising interest rates. Let me explain. There are two kinds of rates that the Fed has influence over. One has much influence. The other, not that much, but still has influence. Short-term rates, which are treasuries on treasury notes, five-year, two-year notes, as they call them. They don't call them bonds. And treasury bills, which are 30, 60, 980 days. Bills, notes, uh, and there's a benchmark that's called the policy rate. That Those are the short-term rates. And the Fed has said it's uh, not going to raise short-term rates for now. But at the same time, the Fed is raising long-term rates. Those are 10 and 30-year, especially 30-year Treasury bonds. How is it raising and why is it raising long-term rates? Of course, you don't get it in the media that the Fed is raising long-term rates, do you? All you hear about is the short-term rates, very conveniently. Well, let me explain. Long-term rates, 30-year treasuries mostly, uh, are rising. <clears throat> and it's got the uh, investment community uh, quite concerned uh, because it's causing uh, destabilization. And it may even uh, cause the first crisis in the treasury bond markets which is very, very important. The bond markets are far more important than stock markets to capitalist stability. Uh, and the treasury markets are the most important of the bond markets. I think there's like 40, 50 trillion dollars in treasuries out there. Okay, so long-term treasuries are rising. Why are they rising? Well, because the Fed is selling massive amounts of treasury bonds to raise money in order to cover this massive U.S. budget deficit this year, $2 trillion. You know, you got a budget deficit not because you are spending too much simply, it's because you're not taking in enough tax revenue. Tax revenues are 60% of the deficit, except now studies have shown that the lack of tax revenue is 75% of this $2 trillion deficit. Well, wait a minute. Why do we have uh, a tax shortfall? Well, because we've been cutting taxes for corporations and investors for, for 20 years now, more than $15 trillion, probably about 16 to $17 trillion in tax cuts, and also because when you have a weak economy, you don't bring in that much tax revenue. And of course, contrary to what they're saying, we have a very sluggish recovery going on after the COVID recession, just as we had a sluggish recovery after the 2008-9 Great Recession. The economy grew at roughly two-thirds of the historical average after 2009. That meant we didn't get the tax revenues coming in the way they should have. And then Trump comes along and cuts taxes by $4.5 trillion. And then we got Biden, who also cuts taxes here in his three big bills, uh, which are really subsidy handouts to corporate, uh, corporate America. Uh, so we got a problem with tax revenues. 75% of the problem with the deficit is tax revenues. The rest of it uh, is, of course, problems with um, more spending and interest on the debt. 
we got this chronic increase in Pentagon and other defense spending going on. And at the same time, we have a massive interest on the debt because rates have been high for two years now. And of course, if you've got to sell more at higher prices, the bond prices, well then, you know, your interest payments are going to be, the Fed's interest payments are going to be huge. And they are. They're $660 billion now. In 2019, they were $290 billion. Now they're up to $660 billion a year, a year. And that's going up even further. So you have massive increase of interest on the debt, war spending, and lack of tax revenue. That's causing a $2 trillion budget deficit. And the Fed has to help cover that gap somehow by selling bonds. And it's doing that. It's estimated we'll have to sell $770 billion in Treasury bonds in the fourth quarter alone and another 800 plus billion in the first quarter of next year. That's a lot of money to be raised by selling bonds, but it's selling the bonds. Now, when the Fed sells the bonds, right, it's dumping a supply of treasuries on the markets, right? It sells the bonds to investors and banks and corporations, it gets money from them as they buy the bonds, and then the Fed has to pay them interest every year on the bond. Okay, but it gets the money, the cash, to cover the budget deficit in this process. Now, when you dump a huge supply of something on the market, what happens to the price of that something? The something in this case are treasury bonds. Well, you increase the supply, supply and demand, simple right? Prices go down when you increase the supply of anything, you know? It could be the supply of, uh, of, uh, of, of eggs, it could be the supply of automobiles, whatever. Well, the treasuries are a supply of something. Well, when you dump, increase the supply that massively, the price goes down. And that's what's happening. Treasury prices are collapsing. Now, because with bonds, you have an inverse relationship between prices, prices of those bonds, and the interest rate on those bonds, when prices of bonds go down, the interest rates go up. And that's exactly what's happening, and that's why long-term bond rates are going up very fast. And it's got the investing community very worried about this. Yeah, and of course it's driving up mortgage rates because all these other rates follow the 30-year treasury, right? Mortgage rates going, they're over 8% now. And that's causing the housing market to take another leg down. You know, the housing market was down about a third. I'm talking about, you know, new housing starts and, and mortgage applications and all the other indicators. Down about a third already. Well, now it's taking another leg down further as interest rates pass the 8% 30-year fixed rate. Okay, so uh, it's pulling up other rates. It pulls up the long-term treasuries pull pull up the uh, prime rate, which is the rate that businesses, uh, banks uh, charge its, its best customers. That's going up with mortgage rates as well. So interest rates, Fed is raising interest rates in that long-term, and that's why it's saying, well, we're going to pause short-term, <laughs> right? Uh, what they're doing is saying, well, let's see how much long-term rates slow the economy before we decide to raise short-term rates even more. That's what's going on. That's why you've got a pause going on. Are they pausing because inf inflation is coming down so, so fast? No. No. As I've said on this show last week, if you look at the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is the closest index to reality, you know, the PCE and the GDP deflator are low-balled and questionable. The CPI is the closest to reality. That, that under, understates uh, inflation to some extent, but not as much as the other indexes. So if you look at CPI, uh, services prices and CPI have been stuck for at least six months or more at the 5 to 6% range. They haven't come down. 
even though the Fed has raised its short-term rates by five and a quarter, five and a half percent in a short period of time, record rise in short-term rates, right? Uh, service inflation have not has not come down. Now, what about goods? Goods prices, you know, goods uh, is part of the CPI. Uh, you know, services are most of the CPI, but goods prices are part of the CPI. Goods meaning things that you buy and you consume, like gasoline or food. Those are called non-durables. Or when you buy cars or appliances and stuff like that, that's called durables. Okay. Uh, well, durable goods prices had come down. Uh, since the peak in the summer of 22, they had come down here until this summer, but now they're going up again too. Why? Because the big component and, and uh, cause of goods prices is energy. Energy, uh, gasoline, fuel oil, uh, and uh, diesel, all these are going up here in the last two months. So, now we got goods prices going up and services prices chronic and stuck at 5 to 6%. Well, inflation's going up, and you would think the Fed would raise interest rates, short-term rates, even further. But no, the Fed has said, we're not raising short-term rates. We're going to pause, keeping the possibility it may in the future. But it says they're going to pause because they know long-term rates are going up anyway. Uh, why do both? Let's see what happens by long-term rates going up. Well, another reason why they don't want to raise short-term rates is because it's causing problems. It's causing problems in other financial markets, and I'll explain why here. Uh, I forgot to mention that long-term rates are, are going up not simply because the Fed is dumping treasuries in order to raise cash to cover the budget deficit, right? But the Fed is also contributing to long-term rates going up uh, because of its policy called quantitative uh, tightening, uh, which is the opposite of QE, quantitative easing. Quantitative tightening is uh, the Fed uh, selling off its uh, long-term debt. You see, in 2008-9, uh, the Fed sold so many uh, treasuries uh, that it got stuck with $4 trillion. It pumped $4 trillion into the economy, right, to try to bail out the banks. You know, in 2001, uh, the Treasury, well, actually 2007, uh, the, the Fed's debt was uh, $800 billion, less than a trillion. By the end of the 2009-10 crash, it was $4 trillion. And the Fed did not do anything to try to retire that debt uh, all during uh, the Obama years. It kept zero interest rates, right? If you want to retire the debt, uh, you raise your interest rates, uh, which attracts uh, buyers. It kept interest rates near, near zero. Uh, and then we got COVID, and the Fed threw another 4 to $5 trillion into the banks. Yeah. Four to five trillion more, and its total debt, the Fed's total debt, um, was at nine trillion dollars at the end of COVID. By the way, it threw that money at the banks uh, when the banks didn't even need it. Yeah, it was a pre-bailout of the banks. You know, at least in 2008, 90, it was a bailout of the banks. They were in trouble, but now it was a pre-bailout in 2020. Yeah, they gave them all this money in case they were in trouble, and they weren't. Uh, so the Fed ended up with a $9 trillion debt. Uh, you know, most of that debt was at pretty low interest rates because interest rates were very low at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't cost the Fed that much in terms of uh, uh, interest payments on the debt. I think in 2019, the total annual interest payments on the debt was like uh, $290 billion in the Fed. Today, it's $660 billion. Because rates have gone up and they've sold so many more treasuries. Massive increase in interest on debt. Couple more years, it'll be 900 billion per year. That's gonna raise a crisis here. How can you continue raising war spending 
for Biden's three wars, when you don't raise taxes, right? well, you take it out on social programs, austerity, but you still can't even raise enough money to cover that $900 billion interest on the debt by 2028. You can't. It's not there. So we got a real fiscal crisis that's brewing, and that's driving a monetary crisis, a Fed crisis, a monetary crisis. You know, as Fed throws all these treasuries on the market in order to raise money to cover this huge budget deficit being driven by war spending, insufficient taxes, and now massive interest on the debt payments. It's a fiscal crisis full of contradictions that's spilling over to the monetary side and causing contradictions on the monetary side. Now, a minute ago, you know, I said the problem with collapsing bond prices, treasury bond prices, uh, is the oversupply of the Fed as it dumps treasuries to raise funds to cover the deficit and as it sells off its long-term $9 trillion debt, you know, it's, it's thrown a trillion dollars of treasuries uh, uh, just by selling off its, uh, what's called its balance sheet, its debt here in the past year. That's on top of all the money it's raised and will raise $770 billion, $800 billion here over the next six months uh, to cover the budget deficit. Now, on top of that, you got a decline in demand for treasuries. You know, economics 101. You know, if you know, it's one one. Increase the supply, something the price goes down. Increase it, decrease the demand for something, the price also goes down, right? Increase supply, price decline. Decrease demand, price decline. And because price decline is inverse to interest rates, remember where bonds are concerned, interest rates go up. Now, demand for treasuries is going down too at least foreign demand for treasuries. The Chinese used to hold uh, uh, 1.1 trillion, I think it was, in US securities, mostly treasuries. They've reduced that to 800 billion. They're not gonna get caught like Russia did with 300 billion <laughs> you know, sitting in the uh, central banks you know, that they can't get to. Uh, so they're reducing their purchase of treasuries. And, and Japan is now the biggest buyer of treasuries or holders of treasuries, uh, but for other reasons, it too is reducing its purchases of treasuries, U.S. treasuries. And then the rest of the world uh, is, is different Different countries, different policies. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's Asia, it's, it's China and it's Japan that buy the most treasuries. The demand is going down there. Demand goes down. Price of treasury, another force driving down the price of treasuries and driving up long-term treasury rates, okay? So this is the crisis, this is the crisis of monetary policy. These are the contradictions in monetary policies which are linked to the contradictions in fiscal policies. And they both are exacerbating each other. Neoliberal policies, fiscal monetary policies, are facing growing contradictions and becoming increasingly ineffective, right? Uh, the U.S. capitalist economy is in deep trouble. At the same time, U.S. neoliberal, uh, what, what's called external policies, external meaning trade policies, and meaning uh, dollar policies, currency policies, balance of payments policies, these are external policies as they're called, are also facing contradictions, which is facing the worst. The US dollar is facing the worst contradiction. Yeah, the US uh, uh, dollar is the linchpin of the global economic empire of, of the USA. You know? And it is in decline. Uh, both as a trading currency, in other words, to buy and sell goods, particularly oil and commodities, and as a reserve currency, in other words, central banks holding dollars like they would hold gold. It's declining in both cases. And that decline is now accelerating because of Biden and U.S. policies 
in recent years having to do with sanctions, right? The sanctions uh, policies of the U.S. are forcing other countries to get out from under the dollar. Why? Because the dollar is the way that the U.S. spies on other countries to see if they are abiding by the sanctions, specifically buying Russian oil in this case and other Russian commodities, but mostly oil, right? Uh, and the U.S. spies on who is by using dollars to buy Russian oil because, you know, oil commodities used to be traded just totally in dollars. You know, you couldn't buy them on global markets without buying them with dollars, any country. So uh, that's declining, and the U.S. sanctions uh, use what's called the International Payment System, SWIFT, that's an acronym, S-W-I-F-P, uh, to see who is using dollars to buy Russian oil. So countries want to avoid these sanctions, so now they're not using dollars to buy oil, and the dollar, you know, is weakening as the global, global currency as a result. Uh, look, the BRICS, these five countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, uh, in India, China, South Africa, have recently expanded to 11 members, from the original five to 11 members, there are, and more are, are joining. Right? Why are they joining? Uh, in order to, to avoid uh, using, having to use the dollar and uh, the SWIFT payment system. There's gonna be an alternative payment system, there already is. Uh, and it's interesting to note that these new BRIC countries are almost all oil-producing countries. Saudi Arabia, Arab Emirates, uh, what is it, Nigeria, I think. Uh, well, they're all oil, except one, I think. Uh, even even um, uh, Argentina produces oil. So somehow this new currency is gonna be backed by oil. Uh, as well as a, a basket of other currencies, probably the China yuan and some others. Okay, so uh, the U.S. Uh, external policy is facing growing contradictions, exacerbated by the sanctions and the U.S. policy on proxy war in Ukraine. So all across the board, uh, you, you see these neoliberal policy, fiscal, monetary policy, external policy in trouble. And now you even see industrial policy, neoliberal industrial policy, the first cracks in that. Uh, because this summer, this past year, we had some significant union contract negotiations and strikes. Uh, we have the Teamsters UPS negotiation. We have the auto workers just settled. Uh, uh, there's some others in there, longshore workers, etc. cetera. Uh, so the union world is waking up. Uh, you know, the essence, the centerpiece of, of uh, neoliberal industrial policy was to have wage compression. And a big element of that was uh, uh, to uh, break down the unions and force them into concession bargaining, which went on for 40 years. But it looks like concession bargaining is now ended here with these recent settlements. Okay, so even industrial policy, neoliberal industrial policy, is uh, on the ropes, maybe. It's, it's the, the latest to join uh, neoliberal uh, economic policy breakdown. You know, at the forefront uh, is the dollar declining and monetary policy and fiscal policy. Okay. Uh, so long-term interest rates uh, to return to the Fed is now over 5% five, 5 here. Uh, and why is the Fed not raising short-term rates? Uh, because short-term rates uh, have, uh, have to do with businesses borrowing to keep their businesses going, working capital, whatever, not necessarily to expand their production and output, build factories, et cetera, but just to keep going. Uh, 
And we've already seen short-term rates at 5.5%, uh, even before that, uh, cause a great instability in, in the regional banking uh, banks in this country. Uh, we, we saw last March, and that problem, of course, is still here with us. The Fed has been bailing out, throwing money at the regional banks. Another reason why it has to raise more money. Uh, you know, three months ago, it was $500 billion they had thrown at the regional banks. And I don't know how much more since then. And they're trying to get the regional banks to, to sell off uh, their uh, uh, assets here to raise money themselves, <clears throat> not just use Fed money uh, and FDIC money. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's this policy program to uh, to uh, rescue these, these banks one by one. And there's about 20 of them that are still in big trouble here, according to the rating agencies, Moody's and Fitch, uh, just hanging on. Uh, and one of the big reasons why they're in trouble is, is what's called interest rate risk. The interest rates went too high, and too many of them bought too many treasuries <laughs> during COVID, and now those treasuries have collapsed and their balance sheets collapsed as a result. And now they're in trouble. And since they're depositor in uh, institutions, depositors see them in trouble and they take their money out and they move it. Uh, and then the Fed has to come in and bail them out and throw money in, in onto their balance sheet here. Uh, okay, so um, regional bank instability and bailouts are still ongoing. Uh, and if the Fed continues raising short-term rates, it exacerbates that. You know, it just sort of undermines that the Fed has to put more money in if interest rates go up uh, short term further for the regional banks. And then you've got uh, commercial real estate, which uh, uh, is full of what's called junk bonds, high interest rate bonds uh, that were borrowed and now rates are even higher, uh, that they don't have the commercial real estate companies you know, real estate investment trusts and so forth, don't have uh, the liquidity, the cash to pay those high rates. Um, and uh, they're about to default on some of them. Uh, and somebody has to roll those rates, those those loans over, uh, you know, in the near future. I think $1.7 trillion of uh, commercial real estate debt is coming up in the, the next 12 months. Uh, to be refinanced and be refinanced at a higher rate now, and it would be even higher if the Fed kept raising rates, so it's not. Uh, so the Fed is trying to avoid uh, a, a kind of destabilizing of the commercial real estate market uh, as well as the regional banks. Another reason why it didn't, it, it's not raising short-term rates further. Uh, and then you've got the housing market uh, which is now taking another leg down in terms of contraction. You know, it had contracted about a third here uh, as rates began to rise, and then it sort of leveled off. Uh, but now uh, housing starts and mortgage applications and so forth are turning down once more, uh, and we, we'll see how much further it goes down as inter-mortgage rates uh, uh, break through the 8 8% 30-year uh, fixed um, threshold here. Uh, well, that's another area, uh, residential housing, uh, that uh, the Fed is concerned about, especially because next year, I don't know how many trillion, but in 2024, a lot of purchases of five-year adjustable rate mortgages, five-year arms that were taken out during the boom in 2019, uh, which were very low, as rates were low then, uh, a lot of those are going to reset. Residential mortgages arms are going to, five-year arms are going to reset in 2024. Well, if they reset, they're going to go from like two, three uh, to eight, nine <laughs> percent. And that means a lot of people are just going to default on their mortgages uh, if rates continue to go higher. So, that's another area. And junk bonds in general, company, a lot of zombie companies uh, were able to stay afloat because zero rates, even through COVID, right? Uh, just roll over that, that debt, right? Uh, but now 
you've, you've got the interest rates higher, and the question is, are banks going to want to, especially regional banks, right, going to want to roll over those zombie companies' debt here at a higher rate? Uh, we're going to see a lot of cracks and a lot of zombie companies here uh, uh, next year, even given current rates, uh, let alone higher rates. So for all these reasons, the Fed has not raised interest rates short term. Now, the Fed says, Powell says, oh, we're not going to raise interest rates anymore, short term. He doesn't say that, short term, because it looks like we have a soft landing. Yeah. He says we have a soft landing. Soft landing means the real economy is not going to fall into recession. Oh, so the Fed has succeeded in preventing a recession? After raising short-term rates as fast as you know on record, and now allowing long-term rates, right? The Fed has has succeeded in the soft landing of the real economy. Oh, they're using the fact that this GDP of 4.9 percent in the third quarter, which is an annualized rate. It's not that the economy grew 4.9 percent in July to September. No, no, it grew, it grew 1.2 percent. Okay, month to uh, quarter to quarter, 1.2% more than the second quarter of this year. The U.S. likes to annualize it because it makes the number look bigger. It's the only G7 economy that does that. All the other economies just do quarter to quarter, month to month. Okay, uh, so keep that in mind. It's really 1.2%. Uh, but if you look within the GDP, in the core GDP, core meaning consumption and investment, business core, business investment, uh, that's the, you know, 80% of the economy. Uh, well, that only grew 2.5% in the second quarter. Right? When you look at the core, uh, you know, in addition to consumption and investment, you have government spending and you have net exports. Um, well, 2.5% two core is really 0.6% quarter to quarter. So the U.S. economy barely grew from the second to third quarter by uh, half of 1%. Well, that doesn't look very robust to me. Plus, you got to remember, as I explained last week, go back and, and um, listen to last week's show, uh, the GDP, whether it's 0.6% uh, uh, or 25 um, for the year, or 1.2 annualized, 4.0, whatever, right, is overstated for two big reasons. The first reason is uh, it redefined GDP back in 2013 and added $500 billion more every year to the economy and doing that by adding questionable items you know, like an intellectual property and uh, th that you can't really price, you know, and logos and trademarks and uh, changing your research and development from a cost to an investment. Uh, in other words, it manipulated the definition of GDP to boost it uh, back in 2013. It's been doing that ever, ever since. If you took that out, <clears throat> there would be no growth in GDP. And actually... If you really estimated the inflation adjustment more accurately, uh, there would be clearly a contraction of the economy going on now. And by the way, you know, you look at purchasing managers' indexes uh, for manufacturing, that's been contracting, manufacturing has been contracting for nine months now. And services... PMI has been slowing down so fast it's at zero, zero growth PMI, and we'll soon enter fourth quarter uh, negative territory. So, you know, if you look at the PMI, purchasing managers indexes uh, as a, you know, an indicator of where the economy is, uh, you see a flat contraction, not a big robust growth. The economy is contracting. When you look at other statistics and data, is that a soft landing? Uh, well, you know, the Fed forecasts are for itself. The Fed forecast for the fourth quarter is only a 
GDP growth in the fourth quarter and a 1% next winter, first quarter 24. So we go, and that's an annual rate, by the way, right? So we go from 4.9, which is an aberration for statistical reasons, uh, in the third quarter of this year, this 4.9. Uh, that uh, the Fed itself is even saying is going to sharply, uh, sharply slow down to one percent. Whenever you see the Fed or the government saying one percent uh, or less, but still positive, that's just a statistical adjustment or an error here. You know, they they don't want to say it's flat or it's it's negative. They want to just say, oh well, there's just a little bit of growth, right? Uh, so, you know, the economy is, is projected to be flat at best here over the winter after this 4.9. If it was a soft landing, uh, well, we would have a continuation, wouldn't we, of robust growth in the fourth quarter and first quarter of next year. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you got to take this soft landing uh, as, as kind of a media spin. Uh, it's not really a soft landing. Uh, well, Peel this onion, this GDP onion, a little further, and what you see is even the 4.9% core 2.5%, right, was almost all inventory investment and, of course, intellectual property, which is just a, a fudge factor. What's inventories? Inventories are businesses building up their goods that they plan to sell. Well, you know, third quarter, they always build up expectations of holiday sales. Uh, so it's all inventory adjustment. Uh, and if the Christmas holiday sales don't go well, well, then that very positive inventory factor here in third quarter GDP is going to be a, a very negative factor over the winter because they're simply not going to add more inventory. They're going to sell off the unsold inventory they have. So from an inventory plus, you're going to have an inventory very negative uh, coming up here. And then, of course, we've got housing. With the rate increase, I said housing is taking another leg down, right? Uh, you've got some consumer spending here in the third quarter. Uh, but that's before we have this hit for oil and gasoline prices really taking an effect, which is happening now, and before you have students uh, getting whacked uh, with hundreds of dollars more on their student debt, renewal of the debt at even a higher price than they had before. That's going to take a whack out of it, out of spending. So renewed inflation. And, and by the way, it's not just energy prices going up. Have you noticed what your medical insurance and bills and your auto insurance and bills are at the end of the year? You're getting all these statements, right, saying, oh, well, we're going to raise it 10, 20%. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's price gouging by big pharma and uh, the big medical insurance companies going on at the end of the year because that's when, uh, you know, Medicare resets. Uh at the end of the year, and that's when they jack their prices up for the coming year. And then you're going to have higher auto prices in the wake of the auto settlement. Uh, you know, but keep in mind that wage labor costs for the price of a new car is only 10% of that new car price. But it doesn't matter to auto companies. They're going to claim that it's the UAW wage contract here they just settled is why they're going to have to raise their auto prices once again. I mean, most people are getting to the point they can't afford a new auto. That's why you have so much demand for used. And, of course, that's raising the price of used cars. Right? Uh, but the auto companies are doing everything they can with cash back and discounts and so forth and stringing out the years in which you pay for a car. Now I think the average is, is, is seven years, not even five years. It's 84 months. Uh, that's how they get it down and discounts, right? But the price goes up for the car, nonetheless, you know, the retail price. Well, you're going to see more auto price increases. Auto insurance uh, is going up. Uh, uh, medical insurance is going up. Uh, other insurances are going up. Uh, gasoline is going up. 
fuel oil heating is going diesel for trucks, which is going to tack onto the price of goods sold as the price of transporting them goes up. Inflation is going to continue to go up, right? Oh, but we got a soft landing. Yeah, we got a soft landing. Uh, but the Fed is raising short term because it's raising long term and because, you know, it doesn't want to exacerbate instability in the financial markets. Uh, but if you look at the real economy, once again, it's mostly temporary factors in the third quarter, like inventory uh, correction and growth here. Uh, and uh, also a factor that's going to slow the economy is what's called net exports. That's the difference between selling uh, U.S. goods to the rest of the world exports and U.S. buying goods from the rest of the world called imports, right? Uh, and if your imports are greater than your exports, well, then you have a negative uh, impact on GDP. Well, that negative impact is going to get worse because foreign offshore countries are going to buy even less exports from the U.S. than they have been because they're in recession. Europe's in recession. Uh, the U.K. is fudging the numbers. It's, the economy is flat. It's actually in recession. So the demand for U.S. exports is going to go down. Uh, China is slowing once again. Uh, that's a big source of export sales for the U.S. Uh, and uh, Japan is slowing again. Um, so forget net exports as a contributor to uh, the soft landing. And economic growth, in fact, is going to be a contribution to further weakening in the economy. And you can forget uh, uh, consumer spending, which is already weakening, and consumer sentiment expectations are already weakening. So uh, uh, that's going to slow down. By the way, you know, uh, retail sales is a four quarter, 30% of all consumer spending. And they don't adjust that for inflation. They don't adjust retail sales for inflation. So, you know, that puffs up the consumer spending numbers. Uh, in, in short, you know, I don't see uh, a soft landing here, meaning that uh, we're not going to slip into recession. Uh, yes, we are. We are. Uh, the, the only really growth area is uh, uh, government spending, and that's going on. And certain sectors of business spending, like on artificial intelligence, which is booming, right? That investment in AI is booming. Uh, and the government uh, war spending is booming. Uh, and the government is also throwing money at corporations here with its three bills it passed last year. Uh, infrastructure bill, um, chip and modernization, manufacturing modernization bill. And on top of that, uh, the Inflation Reduction Bill, which is mostly uh, uh, for uh, uh, energy. Okay, so there's some spending going on there from those three bills. Uh, and more spending, big time, going up and up and up. All right, so that's the real economy picture, uh, and that's the real inflation picture. Um, bottom line, no, the soft landing means it's going to get a hell of a lot softer. <laughs> uh, inflation's going to creep up, right? Uh, and um, the Fed is going to uh, have to dump even more treasuries, and that's going to keep interest rates rising at the high end, even though the Fed may stall its, uh, its, its short-term rate rises. Okay. So let's talk about some other issues here. Let's talk about uh, briefly the climate crisis. I didn't talk about that uh, all that much, but something caught caught my eye that is really worrisome. Uh, you know, I've always said capitalism is going to make it to the mid uh, mid century here uh, because it's going to fail on three big strategic fronts. Uh, one, it's not going to resolve the climate crisis in time. That's going to get worse and have terrible consequences for us by mid, uh, you know, 2050, mid-century here. Uh, the second one is the U.S. empire uh, as it uh, 
as it weakens and declines, it's going to engage in more wars, and some of them are going to be quite risky, and the possibility of accident, a nuclear accident, uh, rises significantly. We can see that already occurring, right? Uh, and the third is uh, this whole artificial intelligence development is going to massively wipe out jobs and lower wages. And uh, with the fiscal crisis and deficits and debt and so forth, the government is going to be hard-pressed to keep uh, you know, the incomes uh, of those folks losing their jobs. And we're looking at 300 million, according to Goldman Sachs. Uh, the government is not going to uh, be able to respond uh, economically. I mean, some kind of uh, guaranteed annual income has to occur by mid-century, but the U.S. won't have the money to do it. And that's going to unleash all kind of uh, also domestic crises. So those three, three things I, I see as uh, uh, the big uh, weaknesses in capitalism uh, by the mid mid-century and of course one is the climate crisis and and what i saw recently was some uh, reports here that uh, already uh, global warming has increased 1.2 percent 1.2 percent i believe that's centigrade uh, and the tipping tipping no you know point of no return tipping point is one and a half percent now the prediction was we wouldn't hit one and a half percent until 2032, but now the most recent report says one and a half percent is coming by 2028, which means it's getting worse fast. And which means that sometime in the 2030s, we're going to pass the 2% uh, temperature threshold. And when that happens, you have very severe uh, weather and economic consequences. You know, probably most hurricanes will be Category 5, and uh, the droughts will be massive, and the fires will be massive, and the sea level will rise faster than they predicted. Uh, it's very serious. Uh, so they're, they're falling behind the curve on the climate crisis. Something to make note of. Okay, on that happy note, let's talk about war. You know, what's going on in Ukraine and in Israel here? Well, some very negative things for the U.S. neocons and the Biden administration, right? Uh, let's look at Ukraine, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, on the ground, uh, it's obvious the Ukrainian offensive has absolutely come to a halt. And uh, big quarrels going on between Zelensky and his main general Zeluzhny uh, as to uh, whether to completely go on to the defensive or uh, to attack uh, certain areas like um, where the Russians are on the offensive and making gains like in, in the north of Kupiansk area and uh, in the big fight uh, outside Donetsk city, which is... Uh, Avdivka, uh, big fight going on there. And then you got in Zaporizhia, uh, Verbovia, and the Robotnia uh, area, right? Uh, well, Zelensky wants uh, Zeluzhny to go on the offensive here around Avdivka. Uh, and uh, Zeluzhny is the general saying, no, we got to dig in everywhere. So big fights going on uh, within. And, and maneuvering, political maneuvering going on with, within the Ukrainian uh, uh, elite here as uh, their, their military offensive has collapsed and uh, they can't seem to uh, uh, defend very well against uh, Russia, uh, Russia's offensive that's coming. By the way, you know, I mean, you just look at the, uh, the basic um, elements of uh, of military conflict, and that is <clears throat> and in arms. Uh, if you want to constant six hundred mile front, uh, 
Uh, and uh, Ukraine's having trouble doing that. They've lost so many men. Uh, estimates between three and 400,000 have been killed in this war uh, so far, Ukrainians, maybe about 30, 40,000 of Russians, uh, that they just don't have the forces anymore, and they're recruiting, they're, they're drafting now, reportedly, Ukraine's drafting uh, men over 60 years old. They're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Right. At the same time, uh, Russia has mobilized three, four hundred thousand more that are coming online, where it's existing uh, three, four hundred thousand actually, you know, on 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 the front there. Uh, they're adding men. They're adding resources. Russia always had more resources, and the problem with Ukraine was it had to rely on limited uh, manpower uh, and on. Uh, foreign uh, weaponry and ammunition and uh, it's just running out of ammunition particularly uh, artillery shells in the u.s and, and europe can't supply it uh, uh on a sufficient level anymore and then air superiority uh, russia's air superiority apparently just took another leap here they brought some weapons online probably kind of AWACS and long-term air-to-air missiles uh, and uh, reportedly in last week, they've downed 24 uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, MiGs, 24 of them. And never had big air force anyway, but they're, they're gone. Uh, so air superiority, you, you can't win without air superiority. And you can't win uh, without a, a massive increase vis-a-vis uh, -vis your opponent in weaponry and uh, manpower. And it doesn't have that either. Um, so, take a look at this this latest Time magazine piece, right, about Zelensky. Uh, it's the first hit piece, the first negative piece. Uh, it's front page, right? Uh, and really what it means is the elite in, in the U.S. and the media are uh, starting to deflate the bubble about Zelensky, the hero, right? Uh, getting ready uh, to force him... Um, force him out and put someone else in there, probably some Ukrainian general, who'd be willing to negotiate something with the Russians, if they negotiate, uh, that will allow the U.S. next year some kind of an off-ramp. Uh, at the same time, you know, we see this fight going on in Congress. It's pretty clear that Congress does not want to pass some big... Um, uh, financial military aid bill for Ukraine. It doesn't want to do that. It's uh, break latest notice. It's breaking out its eleven appropriations bills, uh, so it can shoot down uh, the Ukraine appropriation bill. Now, why is it doing this? Uh, well, it's doing this uh, because uh, it, it wants to spend more money on uh, on Israel, a blank check, which is given Israel, right? So it expects that bill to go up with Israel, so the bill has to go down with the Ukraine, or the deficit keeps getting more than $2 trillion and all the other problems we talked about. So, uh, you know, you've, you've got this big problem of uh, militarily, in terms of principles of war, Russia is uh, just, uh, has an even bigger advantage now, you know. Apparently, uh, you know, it's throwing... Uh, thousands of, of drones onto, uh, uh, onto the frontier that it's now producing in mass. Um, it expects its uh, uh, tank production to go up uh, four and five-fold, uh, whereas Ukraine's begging for tanks from the West. Um, so the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall with Ukraine financially and uh, militarily here, and uh, political dissension and problems are growing. Uh, Zelensky, as I predict, will be gone within six months, probably a hell of a lot sooner than that. And uh, there'll be another more amenable negotiator to help give uh, Biden an off-ramp of some kind. The war's been lost. What about it? Uh, Israel and, and Hamas. Oh, a lot of talk about, oh, the delay, the delay, they're delaying, uh, Israel's delaying to get the hostages out. Nah, Israel doesn't give a damn about the hostages, <laughs> right? Israel's strategy is to level the north part of Gaza, 
to prevent the Hamas from operating from the north end, squeeze 2.3 million people in the south end, which is unsustainable, uh, and uh, therefore some of them are going to have to leave and uh, to, to other Arab states. That's the strategy. And they don't care about uh, hostages here. Israel's policy is, is not to be concerned about hostages. They're going to level the place. And of course, we got about eight, 9,000 people dead within a couple of weeks, uh, more than 3,000 kids being dead. Uh, and it's causing tremendous worldwide uh, protests and opposition. Even in the UN, uh, they're losing. They, the U.S. and Israel, are losing uh, position in in the UN. Uh, Turkey's President Erdogan has recently made a public statement that he's open uh, for the rest uh, to join the rest of the Arab states here to develop a common strategy to deal with the genocide going on in in Gaza. That's significant. I mean, look, uh, the war has done something that has never happened in 75 years in that area, and that it's united Shiite and Sunni uh, Muslims with the Turks. Uh, and you've got a situation now that may threaten the existence of Israel itself if it continues, right? Uh, but the, the delays are really not for hostages. Uh, the delays are really for the U.S., uh, to get its four aircraft carriers on site here. A couple in the eastern Mediterranean, they'll put another one in the Red Sea, another one off of uh, uh, Southern Arabia Peninsula. Why, why do, do, does Israel need four U.S. aircraft carriers and the submarines and surface ships that go with it? No. No. I mean, one would be sufficient for the U.S. to deal with Hezbollah if they attack. Why four? Well, because that's their to provoke Iran. The U.S. wants to go after Iran. And now you've got this, this uh, uh, resolution in Congress that uh, the U.S. is authorized, the U.S. should go to war and attack Iran to prevent a nuclear weapon, right? So you're going to see a false flag saying, oh, Iran's about to use a nuclear weapon as the justification for this drumbeat in Congress to go to war with Iran. Yeah, that's what's coming. That's why they want four aircraft carriers there. It's not to help Israel. It's not even to stop Hezbollah. Uh, you know, another development is Russia is uh, clearly allied with Palestine. I mean, Russia was sort of quietly allied, uh, as far as uh, terrorism concerned, with Israel. Uh, well, that's no longer the case. Russia, and it will support uh, Palestine now, along with the other Arab and uh, Turkish states here. Uh, Netanyahu has caused the problem. Yeah. Uh, look, it'll come out eventually that the reason why they, they the Israelis, were so unprepared uh, and allowed on October 7th uh, this, this massive attack by Hamas, which wiped out uh, a lot of battalions here of uh, Israeli soldiers, a lot of, a lot of soldiers, not just, uh, uh, you know, uh, kibbutzim and uh, other, other cities, small towns, Israeli towns around Gaza. No, uh, these were open firefights, and a lot of the, uh, you know, the 1,400 were killed uh, in, in the firefight between the two, two sides. Uh, but Hamas militarily overwhelmed, weakened Israeli uh, forces, now, why were they weakened? They were weakened because Netanyahu had moved a lot of them to the West Bank to support a policy that was underway of uh, backing up and protecting uh, the Israeli settlers in their taking of land and houses and so forth of Palestinians in the West Bank. There's a big, big offensive going on in the West Bank. And I hear somewhere like 20 battalions of Israelis were backing up the whole process here, you know, going positioned and willing to go in to help the Israeli police who were also supporting. Well, this was Netanyahu policy, more land, take more land. Uh, well, it'll come out that uh, Netanyahu um, was partly responsible for uh, letting uh, Hamas uh, do what it did uh, around Gaza. Now, to be fair, Hamas also attacked uh, because it's um, 
this possibility of a Saudi Israel agreement. Uh, and of course, uh, the attack stopped that in its track. Because if that happened, there would be no Palestinian state ever. Uh, and of course, also, the attack, I think, was because of uh, the uh, El Elam. Forget the name of the mosque there in Jerusalem, but which was going to be torn down, make way for the new temple. Okay, so that, that's uh, that's my analysis. Uh, war, we're getting damn close to war with Iran in the Middle East, and that's what it's all about now, which means the end uh, for the war in Ukraine. Okay, uh, that's it. I'm out of here. Sin